trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. All right, so I have some exciting news. Maybe you will hear it in my voice. I guess more accurately, you may hear it in the background noise. But for those who don't know, uh, my family and I have been in the process of moving to uh, southern Idaho. And and when I say in the process, it's not like, yeah, we just packed up and moved. It was like, no, it it actually took, uh, and it's taking, a matter of weeks, a long time. Like, forever. <laughs> Nonetheless, we are finally moving into our new digs. I have been setting up my studio. And, uh, you know, like a bad kid, I've been relegated to the garage, more or less. Uh, this is this is where we used to be sent to eat our supper if we misbehaved. But uh, instead, this is where I'm being sent to do whatever it is I do. So, um, if, you, if you hear some interesting acoustics, bear with me. We're going to be working on them. We'll, we'll see if we can get this figured out. Um, right now... I'm just grateful to be set up in a place of my own where, where I'm not, uh, you know, recording under combat conditions. This has been quite an adventure, and I'll probably talk a little bit more about it as we move forward. But one thing that I wanted to talk about was privilege, because uh, I, I'm catching a fair amount of this. And, and in fact, to the, to the point where there are some people with whom I'm really reluctant to engage because uh, anything that I have to offer to any conversation, it's not so much I'm even trying to prove them wrong or trying to set them straight or, you know, otherwise, you know, dictate to them, hey, this is the way the cow chewed the cabbage. But uh, any time that I contribute to a conversation, maybe on social media, sometimes in person, I kind of get the, I get handed the uh, shut you down card. You're mansplaining. You're coming from a position of privilege. Or if I'm saying, I really don't agree with, you know, some of this identity politics or cancel culture. They tell me that's just your white male fragility. And I mean, it's a handy way to stop a conversation. But at the same time, these are the same folks who are saying we need to have conversations. So I'm I'm torn and and not sure how exactly am I supposed to approach that? Um, fortunately, there are better people than myself who have have weighed in on this. And I want to start with a commentary. This is just a post that uh, Connor Boyack uh, shared on Facebook yesterday. And one of the reasons why it drew my attention is because, uh, look, I, I worked with Connor a few years ago at his uh, Libertas Institute, and the, the guy has always impressed me. I've always thought he has a really good, clear, principled take on things. But something that really came to impress me, in addition to his tireless work in the cause of liberty, was the fact that uh, Connor is is diplomatic, He's not out there throwing red meat. He's not, you know, off on a rant. If he has something to say, even if it has, you know, a firm tone to it, it's not intended to put other people down so much as to make a firm stance for a particular principle. Listen to his take. He says, I'm not going to check my privilege. He says, the woke mob's quest for social self-flagellation is counterproductive to progress, and perhaps that's the point. Just like people who fight racism by actually being racist or those who criticize capitalism using things that capitalism has helped create, computers, cell phones, and the like. He says progressives often inhibit progress, at least in any form that doesn't conform to their perception of what society ought to or should be allowed to look like. Now he says, my privilege is what allows me to truly progress. 
But listen to how he describes that privilege. He says, I stand on the shoulders of giants from decades and centuries past who have created tools and technologies and discovered information and ideas that allow me to be more productive, serve more people, and provide for my family along the way. And he says, I don't apologize for this. I'm not ashamed of the benefits I enjoy, nor do I feel guilty for utilizing them. I recognize my fortune and the fortune of even the poorest among us who live better than kings from nearly all of world history. He says, I don't decry the very system that has produced the greatest abundance the world has ever seen. I use it gratefully and intentionally. Of course, the faithful woke progressives are truly Marxists. In fact, he says that uh, their goals are broader than merely becoming the thought police of self-censorship and uh, politically correct newspeak. These are simply the means to an end that involves the deinstitutionalization of civil society a tearing down of the intermediating institutions that have long kept the state in check. And because they want the state to grow, a paternalistic presence to care for them from cradle to grave at others' expense, no matter the cost. But he says the state can only grow by dismantling its competing forces, including the family. Thus, by claiming that the status quo is equated with institutionalized oppression that is not sufficiently inclusive... The Marxist mob aims to assert their moral high ground by carpet-bombing the surrounding terrain. No hostages are taken. You're either with us or against us. And he calls it what it is. He says this is cultural war. It's psychological terrorism. And then he warns, recognize you cannot win a war you don't even know is being fought. If you don't see this ideological infection for what it is, you won't seek to immunize yourself from its effects. You or your children will be plagued by its impact. So he says, gear up for battle. These people don't want diplomacy. They want your submission. But he says, I won't submit. Will you? Now, to some people that may sound like, wow, that's just a harsh take. No, that's a realistic take. That's the, that's the take a principled person should be able to offer without apology because in no way is he forcing his point of view on anybody. And this may seem like a distinction without a difference, but it's, it's all the difference in the world. The cultural Marxist mob, the, the politically correct folks who have been slowly growing and, and gaining prominence and capturing institutions throughout our society. I mean, it, it started with higher education. It's moved to corporate America. Social media has taken over. The, the, big gi- the tech giants are, are rife with it. You're seeing it in so many places. Politics is just filled with politically correct thought. And it's not imposing your point of view to tell someone, I won't go along with something that's designed to, to put me under another person's heel. You're not victimizing anyone. And I know this is going to sound like a little bit of a rant, but uh, I have a problem with people who weaponize their perceived victimhood. I think we all know people who have been victims of things that were beyond their control. But I have a really hard time feeling um, sympathy or, or for that matter, feeling like, boy, I should probably just acquiesce and do whatever this person says because they are wallowing in a self-described or self-claimed victimhood that absolves them from any responsibility for their circumstances whatsoever. That's the beauty of being a victim. You aren't responsible for your circumstances. And people who use this to bludgeon others into submission, 
through guilt or through shame or just through, through outright anger or the threat of being canceled are not good people. They're misguided. They're, they're broken in the respect that uh, they're, they're lusting to do something that is harmful to other people and uh, their conscience, for whatever reason, justifies it. And the crazy thing, as you may have noticed, is uh, you, can, you can be as neutral as you want. You can say, well, I'm just, you know, I'm not a part of that. doesn't matter. They will seek you out. They will find you. They will pull you into a fight if they have to provoke it. What do you think these riots were last year? Stopping motorists and then pounding on their cars until people get scared and react and then, oh, we can't believe they drove off through the crowd or I can't believe somebody shot this guy who was just standing there pointing his AK-47 at a motorist. It's pathetic. And it's not something that we can ignore. So if someone accuses you of of flexing privilege or having privilege, you know, there comes a point with some people, you're probably better off not engaging. If, If the idea is just it's a will for domination, you know, a contest to see who will dominate the other, maybe you're better off not getting into an extended discussion. But I would take what Connor Boyack has written here, uh, I take it seriously and just say, I don't need to apologize and recognize that, yes, we have incredible privileges, all of us. That's the point. These privileges extend to all people who are willing to shake off that sense of victimhood and move ahead with their lives to progress. So I'll have a link to this in the show notes. If you're not on Facebook, well, first of all, good for you. You've probably got more peace of mind than those of us who remain on there. But I will share this with you, and you can find it at the show no- in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Maybe share it on Facebook if you're on there, or just uh, take a look at it and contemplate. How many people who came before us paid the price to advance the cause of humanity, whether it's in, in terms of individual rights, in terms of enlightenment, in terms of uh, private property, in terms of creature comforts? The fact that I'm recording today and broadcasting today from my home instead of having to travel to a city and, you know, find a, a broadcast job that, uh, you know, will hire me. I can do it from anywhere. And I'm very grateful for that. If that now, if that strikes you as privilege, maybe it is. But I'd like to think it's privilege that's being used wisely. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Once again, welcome back to the show. Our sponsors include amazing organizations and uh, and merchandisers and manufacturers like, oh, uh, for instance, pure dash light com hang on pure dash light dot com that's it okay sorry I also have hslamo.com and monticellocollege.org I was trying to keep the dot coms and dot orgs straight in my mind but uh, if you look in the show notes at the show.com you'll find convenient links to each one of my sponsors and I would encourage you to uh, click on them learn a little bit about them tell them thanks for helping to make this program possible and if you need their product or if you need their service, I would encourage you, by all means, just uh, do it. 
<laughs> there you go. Sorry, Nike. Do I owe you some royalties for, for using that phrase? So we were talking in the last segment about uh, the culture war. And, you know, the funny thing about it is there is a whole lot of gaslighting going on, uh, particularly from the media, in which we're being told, oh, there's no such thing as cancel culture. There's no such thing as woke mobs. You know, this is just a figment of your white privileged imagination. Well, there's a, there's a guy by the name of Frank Ferretti who writes for spikedonline.com. This is uh, published in the UK, but boy, has he got a great take on this. And his article is titled, The Culture War is Real, and It's Getting Worse. He says, unlike the German Kulturkampf of the 19th century, the cultural conflict between Bismarck's Kingdom of Prussia and the Roman Catholic Church, today's cultural battles seem small and almost non-political. They often revolve around differences of opinion on the nature of family life, how children should be raised, and what words we should use and not use when communicating with others. Frank Ferretti says the contemporary culture war is also different because the main protagonists do not express their beliefs systematically. They do not promote an explicit philosophy or ideology. That's why the different sides struggle to work out what to call their opponents. So in this sense, today's culture war is very different to the culture kampf and to others, uh, more vicious struggles, for instance, between Protestants and Catholics in Europe's bloody wars of religion during the 16th, 17th, and early 18th centuries. Now, unlike today, everyone involved in the wars of religion knew what was at stake. He says the situation is very different in 2021, where often the very existence of a conflict over cultural values is denied. Media commentators insist there's no such thing as a free speech crisis, and they say that cancel culture is a myth. But he says the culture war is the invention of groups of bitter, out-of-touch, or they claim that we're, we're just bitter, out-of-touch white reactionaries who fear our loss of privilege. So what Frank Ferretti refers to this as is culture war denialism. And the principal premise of this denialism is that campaigns against heteronormativity whiteness, trans-exclusionary, radical feminists, cultural appropriation, and so on, are just struggles for social justice. Now, even though these campaigns target, sometimes violently, many of society's long-established cultural norms, apparently they do not add up to a culture war. Instead, this crusade against Western culture is dressed up in words like inclusion and diversity. It's those on the other side those who want to preserve the values of their community and who resist woke campaigners' attempts to take control of language who are accused of waging a culture war. He says, Culture war denialism is an attempt to normalize and legitimize the crusade against the historical gains of the Enlightenment and Western culture. At the same time, the culture war denialists try to frame the desire to defend the norms and customs of the enlightened modern democratic society as a dangerous threat to the well-being and identity of certain individuals and groups. So to understand how this culture war denialism works, Frank Ferretti then goes on to outline some of the different forms it takes. He says, in recent years, there's been a systematic effort to minimize the significance of the culture war. Numerous commentators claim the culture war is exaggerated. It only involves a small number of protagonists and therefore does not directly touch most people's lives, they insist. A headline in The Guardian summed up this view, Culture Wars are fought by a tiny minority. Citing a report by the more in common think tank, The Guardian, uh, claims that the desire to fight a culture war is the preserve of a small group on the political extremes that does not represent most British voters, 
according to a major new project on political polarization in the UK. Now, the square, the scare quotes around culture war are designed to drive home just how fake this conflict apparently is. The Guardian reassures its readers that a disproportionate amount of political comment on social media is generated by small, politically driven groups. In a recent report, the Policy Institute at King's College London repeated this idea that there is a disproportionate amount of media commentary about the culture war. It noted that there has been an exponential rise in news stories about cultural conflict. But analysis of these stories shows apparently that the culture wars are either either overblown or manufactured if they exist at all. Now further, the uh, King's College London report said 76% of the people it surveyed had no idea what the culture war is. But Frank Ferretti says given the confusion that surrounds this often unacknowledged conflict... It's not surprising that many people are at a loss as to what to make of it all. However, confusion on the culture war doesn't mean that we are not in the middle of a genuine cultural conflict. Moreover, he says, people do recognize something is afoot, even if they don't readily recognize the names and terms used to describe today's cultural tensions. This was clear in the recent Hartlepool by-election, where woke labor was decisively rejected by its former working-class supporters. These voters intuitively knew what the culture war was about when they pushed back against what they perceived to be contempt for their values and their way of life. He says another form of culture war denialism is to acknowledge the existence of such a conflict, but to minimize its importance and claim it's becoming less and less significant. Time and again over the past 30 years, observers have written premature obituaries for the culture war. In 2015, Andrew Hartman, in his book, A War for the Soul of America, A History of the Culture Wars, concluded that the logic of the culture wars has been exhausted. The metaphor has run its course. In a similar vein, Times columnist James Marriott recently concluded that the culture war is running out of steam. Conflicts over gender, race, and language may not disappear, but our enthusiasm has peaked, he said. Now, it's hard to work out what world Marriott inhabits, because at the precise time his column was published, the conflict over cultural values was assuming an unprecedented momentum. In other words, the culture war is alive and well. In fact, it's more deeply entrenched than ever, as shown by its unrelenting expansion into more and more spheres of life. In recent months, sport has become the latest target of the cultural crusaders. Another way that the significance of the culture war is downplayed is by insisting that class and economic issues are far more important than conflicts over values. Now, what this economistic perspective rather overlooks is that cultural values are not an add-on extra to everyday life. Rather, they provide a web of meaning through which people make sense of their lives. Those who claim that economics trumps everything else fail to realize that values such as individual liberty and freedom of speech provide the foundation for the democratic way of life. Also, the culture war is intimately related to class. After all, the culture war largely involves the denigration of the values held by working people, populists, and deplorables by the university-educated professional classes. In its most extreme form, Culture war denialism claims that the people who talk about a culture war are living in a fantasy world. From this perspective, there's simply no such thing as cancel culture, and you shouldn't worry about issues such as trans women competing in biological women's sports. New York Times columnist Charles Blow dismisses concerns about the promotion of critical race theory or trans culture as a kind of freakout. He claims Republicans have invented these problems in order to scare and mobilize their voters. 
He suggests that what really motivates opponents of wokeness and cancel culture is concern with white privilege. Republicans know that there are few cultural buttons they can push to easily generate enough fear and outrage to energize their voters and get them to the polls. The ascension of non-white people, the immigration of non-white people, a threat to white security, a displacement of white power and white culture, an expansion of rights for the gays and abortion. Yep, that sounds pretty familiar. We're going to come back to this article in just a few moments. I do have a link to it in the show notes at thebrianheitshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Yes, we are talking about the non-existent culture war. You know, that reactionary pushback from fragile white male egos such as mine. I mean, that's all it could be, right? I'm not suggesting any psychological projection might be at work here, but isn't it interesting, and especially the quote I was reading in the last uh, segment here uh, for in Frank Ferretti's article from Charles Blow, who's a New York Times columnist, which suggests that, well, you know, this whole cancel culture fear and outrage, you know, that Republicans or that conservatives may talk about, this is just a hot-button issue that they can push to energize voters and get them to the polls. That comment seems to belie a... Uh, well, I don't know, an attitude that uh, everything is political. I mean, maybe to take it to its, co- to its logical end, the history of the world is the struggle of class, right? Victim and oppressor. It just it seems very Marxist in, in how it's uh, approaching things. And yeah, there's a fair amount of gaslighting too. You're just concerned that you're going to lose your power. Well, can we talk, before we go, bo- go on with the article here, let's talk about what power is at stake for me. Because the only power that I seek is the power to live my own life according to my conscience. And that's a, that's a power I suggest you claim in your life as well. In other words, I don't want to interfere with your pursuit of happiness. As long as what you're doing is peaceful, I have zero problem with it. It may not be my thing, I may not wish to participate, but hey, if it makes you happy and if it's peaceful, this is the key distinction. It should definitely be on the table, and it should be, you know, you should be able to do it without apology. But the idea that, well, you're just concerned, you're losing your place at the table. I didn't even know I had a place at the table. Maybe I don't want a place at the table, at least as far as politically uh, connected stuff goes. I tend to view politics as poison. I guess if I can just be perfectly blunt, I want to be left alone. I want them to... Go about their lives. Do what they think is right. If there's a crusade that they feel is worth fighting, by all means, go fight it. But don't you dare come after me and condemn me because I refuse to march in lockstep with whatever your crusade is. Truth be told, I have a few crusades of my own that I'm working on. One of them is protecting the freedom of everybody, including them, by asserting that there are limits to whatever rights we can claim and whatever power we can claim over other people. So back off. (laughs) Well, you still have a chance. 
As uh, Frank Ferretti says, from Blow's perspective, right-wingers push cultural buttons, which in his side, while his side in the culture war is just simply fighting for justice. Well, that's an interesting characterization. And that phrase, pushing cultural buttons, is significant. Phrases like this are only ever used to demean people who are seeking to uphold their way of life. Blow and other cultural warriors assume that any defense of traditional values is illegitimate and a threat to people who, in their view, are on the right side of history. Blow and company are reluctant to call the culture war by its name because then they would have to admit that they are fighting in it. Now, the culture war had no recognizable opening shot. Unlike conflicts of the past, no one declared war on the institutions of society. Yet this conflict is nonetheless an existential struggle over who we are. In his important study, Reflections on History, 19th century historian Jacob Burkhardt argued that the religious wars were terrible because the means of offense and defense are unlimited. Ordinary morality is suspended in the name of the higher purpose. Negotiations and mediations are abhorrent. People want all or nothing. And Frank Ferretti says Burkhardt would have understood the dynamic driving today's cancel culture. He would have grasped their impulse to shut down opponents. He would have recognized the politics of, an, of identity in, in that politics of identity, an attitude that wants all or nothing. Not being open about the existential nature of their crusade is integral to today's culture warriors against the Enlightenment values. They prefer to convince the public that the culture war is a myth rather than admit they are engaged in an all-or-nothing struggle against some of society's most important values and achievements. Man, that's good stuff. I'll, again, I'll have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I want to move on here to talk about amending the Constitution. I have heard calls, and I still hear calls occasionally, for it's time for a convention of the states. What are we going to do when the states convene? You know, a la, you know, 1787 type convention. And the idea is, well, we'll amend the Constitution. We're going to fix it. I'm skeptical, but it's primarily because I don't think we have people of the caliber of James Madison or Benjamin Franklin or any of the other, you know, framers of the Constitution. They weren't perfect, by the way. There were some things that they got right. There were some things that they didn't get right. But I'm very skeptical that we would have a similar result if we started tinkering with it. So I'm not one for trying to amend the Constitution just because the going gets tough. Usually I tend to see the deficiency is in us and our ability or our willingness to apply the limitations of the Constitution to government rather than, hey, this needs to be written better. However, having said that, uh, Rory Margraff has five proposed constitutional amendments that sure make a lot of sense. And I thought I would share a few of these with you because, uh, you know, we're going to be hearing more about uh, amending the Constitution. The Equal Rights Amendment is making its way back into the news. And the legal community is abuzz with the possibility of a 28th Amendment getting tacked onto the Constitution. Rory Margraff says, of course, much of this conversation has been dedicated to whether the Equal Rights Amendment, or ERA, would need to go back through the full ratification process, meaning that it's probably a non-issue at the moment. Still, he says, this does get the juices flowing. It gets cerebral juices flowing for legal enthusiasts. The idea of amending the Constitution, something done just 27 times in history, is about as close as we will get to one actually sitting among the founders in Philadelphia. So here are some ideas he had for uh, ways to amend the Constitution. So 28th Amendment. 16th Amendment to the Constitution is hereby repealed. Okay, I like this one. 
<laughs> I think actually I could get behind this one. In short, abolish the income tax. Now, he says, this is usually a crowd pleaser among libertarians and probably a handful of Republicans during an election year. But it's also a bit of a challenge on the same level as chasing the moon. Still, it would be worthwhile to have the conversation. Generally speaking, income taxes are the most harmful to the lowest income earners. When businesses and the wealthy are paying significant portions of their income to the government, it stagnates growth and prevents job creation. It also prevents those of lower income from spending more money or saving and investing it in themselves, limiting their upward mobility. So there's the political aspect, which would make this amendment very difficult to pass, if not impossible. Both Republicans and Democrats campaign heavily on income taxes, either to lower or raise them. Much like Social Security, to remove or reform it would eliminate party platforms, but one can dream. 29th Amendment. The 17th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. Again, this is one I could get behind. Before the ratification of the 17th Amendment in 1913, senators were not elected by popular elections, but by the legislatures of each state. Following the 2016 election, which saw Donald Trump lose the popular vote but win the Electoral College, discussions of abolishing the Electoral College have reached a fever pitch. In fact, several Democratic candidates indicated their intent to abolish the system. But unfortunately, democracy does not guarantee liberty. It was seen as mob rule by the founders who instead opted for a constitutional republic. But even a representative democracy has its problems. The larger the body politic, the more difficult it is to truly find representation, especially within a two-party duopoly. So while some may say that a senator elected with 51% of the vote is a fair system, it runs counter to the spirit of representative democracy. While the makeup of the state legislature may lead to the same results as a popular election, it would still provide for greater balance and would eliminate the ability of large population centers to dominate elections in the same manner that the Electoral College prevents the few largest cities and states from dominating the field. 30th Amendment. Here's another good one. The word unreasonable contained in the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution of the United States is hereby stricken. This is very straightforward. It removes the qualifying adjective of unreasonable from the Fourth Amendment, which will make clear that any and all searches and seizures of persons or property, papers, houses, and effects must require a lawful warrant. This would eliminate such legal precedent as Terry v. Ohio, which allows the search of a person who has been temporarily detained so long as an officer has a reasonable suspicion of criminal activity. Like most exceptions to the law, the Terry stop, which has been expanded to include traffic stops, has been widely abused, particularly within the context of the war on drugs. Rather than continue to challenge such precedent in court, he says we should eliminate it altogether. There are two other amendments, the 31st and 32nd Amendment. Um, I'm going to let you discover those for yourself. You can check them out in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Again, this is just, these are things that he's, he's putting out there. Just for the sake of, uh, you know, what if we were to amend the Constitution? And frankly, repealing the 16th and 17th Amendments would be a step in the right direction. Of course, it would also be a pretty hard sell for politicians and for people who believe that, well, it's best that the people directly elect their senators rather than have the states appoint those senators. All I can tell you is the senators' loyalty once was to the states and the people. But once they became popularly elected... Their loyalty shifted to the federal government, and it's never been the same since. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you're a first-timer, by the way, if, you're, if this is your first uh, acquaintance with Wrong Think, first of all, I hope it hasn't scared you too badly. I know to some people this seems terribly radical, but uh, to me, this is just common sense stuff, and, and I'm doing this with all the sincerity of someone who deeply loves the principles and practices of freedom and wants to see them maintained. I also understand that it's not the kind of thing that just maintains itself. Okay, kids, here's your freedom. Now go out there and have fun with it. I mean, there's always a price that's paid to to understand and apprehend the principles and the truths on which freedom is founded, and then to live up to them. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's pretty challenging. But it's worth it. And for far too long, we have coasted on the efforts of other people who paid heavier prices than we have paid. And unfortunately, it is starting to catch up with us, and we are quickly losing what remains of those precious freedoms. So I'm here to provide encouragement Perhaps in perspective, you are not under any obligation to agree with anything that I share with you or that I say. I just offer it for your consideration and the hopes that whatever point of view you take away from it, it comes away slightly enlarged. Just you have a little bit broader perspective than you had before. And for some people, this makes some good intellectual ammunition if you're going to be discussing these kinds of things with other people. For this last segment of uh, the program, I wanted to talk about how fashionable it is in some circles to criticize capitalism as the cause of most of the world's problems. This has been going on for a long time. Marx, of course, uh, made it worse because he thought capitalism was just purely exploitation, but there's a lot of criticism that is just misguided. And John Stossel has produced another video which offers some factual counterpoints that clearly illustrate how misguided capitalism's critics are and how capitalism doesn't just enable people to take from others, but it enables them instead to create new wealth. And that means it it actually blesses your life, even if you consider yourself a skeptic. Stossel says, Everywhere people trash capitalism, but what they think they know about capitalism is usually wrong. He has a new video that debunks some myths about capitalism. And in that video, you'll see a quote from uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who complains, no one ever makes a billion dollars. You take a billion dollars. In other words, capitalists get rich by taking money from others. Stossel says that's nonsense. And myth number one, people believe that myth if they think that when one person wins, someone else must lose. So it's natural to believe that if that if you think there's a finite amount of money in the world. But there isn't. Free markets increase total wealth. Competition encourages entrepreneurs to find new ways to release more value from both people and resources. And because capitalism is voluntary and consumers have choices, the only way capitalists can get rich is to offer us something that we believe is better than we had before. That creates new wealth. Steve Jobs became a billionaire, but by creating Apple, he gave us more. Millions of jobs and billions of dollars added to our economy. Research shows that entrepreneurs only keep 2.2% of the additional wealth they generate. In other words, economist Dan Mitchell of the Center for Freedom and Prosperity says the rest of us captured almost 98% of the benefits. 
By the way, he says, I hope that we get 100 new super billionaires because that means 100 new people have figured out ways to make the rest of our lives better off. But former Labor Secretary Robert Reich says we should abolish billionaires. He wants some form of wealth tax to hold their wealth down. Reich claims entrepreneurs like Jeff Bezos would be just as motivated by $100 million or even $50 million. But Mitchell points out that if their income is limited, maybe they just take it easy, retire, sail a yacht around the world, consuming instead of saving and producing. And John Stossel says, I want them saving and producing. Billionaires have shown that they're good at cutting prices or improving products or both. As Mitchell puts it, I'm not giving Jeff Bezos any money unless he's selling something that I value more than that money. Even if they don't, even if they run out of ideas, their wealth is useful. Now, John Stossel says one reader called me a complete moron for saying that. He argues, more money in the richest hands means money sitting in the bank doing nothing. But that's an ignorant view of banks. Because banks loan that money out. They enable other people to buy homes, to start new businesses, and get educated. He says, still I hear that the rich are getting richer while the poor get poorer. That's myth number two. Yes, the rich got lots richer, but the poor and middle class got richer too. So Mitchell says, the economic pie grows. We are much richer than our grandparents, and our grandparents were richer than their grandparents. For thousands of years, the world had almost no wealth creation. Only when some countries tried capitalism did their domestic product grow. In other words, capitalists helped everyone, including the poor. Now, the media suggests that today's wealth gap proves that's no longer true, but they're wrong. Capitalism's gradual progress continues. Census Bureau data shows that the average family today is almost a third richer than 40 years ago. And yes, that's adjusted for inflation. The media also say the middle class is in decline, but Mitchell points out that's not true. Or that is true, rather. It's shrinking because more people are moving into the upper-income quintiles. The rich get richer in a capitalist society, but guess what? The rest of us get richer as well. Now, he's going to follow up on this with more myths about capitalism. And I don't know where you stand. You know, I mean, you know, some people have a very negative view of capitalism because what they understand capitalism to mean is, well, the laws and public policy only tend to favor those who have capital. And you know what? As I look around, they're not wrong, at least in the sense that we have plenty of laws that favor those with capital. I'm trying to remember if it was, um, I, I'm, I, I've seen two different studies. One was from the Pew Research Center. Another one was from Princeton that uh, explored who has the greatest influence on public policy. You know, and for all the people who are patting themselves on the back, well, now, Brian, you know, I don't get nervous because you and me, we're the government. That's the beauty of the American way. You and me are the government. We have no need to complain about government because it's us. Not so, at least not according to these studies. And, and, and what they mean by this is we have very little actual influence on public policy. That's not to say it's impossible. Just the reality is the real influence is exercised by, are you ready for this? Moneyed corporations and special interests. Think industry lobbyists. That's where the real work gets done. There's a reason why politicians will say anything they have to say to get elected, and they'll do anything they have to do to keep the funds coming from those connected, moneyed interests in order to keep them in power. 
It's a symbiotic relationship, and it takes advantage. It's, uh, it may be legal, but it's probably not very ethical. In the meantime, people like you and me, if we want to influence public policy, that's great. They'll pat us on the head and hand us a ball here. Now run along and play. You better show up with a pretty healthy check in your hand if you want the attention of your congressman or of your senator. So when people, you know, when they, when they look at capitalism and say this is, this is just, you know, the rich, you know, getting rich with the help of the government, that's crony capitalism. That's a bastardization or a, a perversion of capitalism. When I talk about capitalism, I'm talking about free market capitalism in which people are free to voluntarily create and interact with each other, and the market, which is a self-correcting institution, rewards those who accurately create value for other people, and it punishes those who do not. And the way it punishes them is if they start a business that underserves or fraudulently you know, misleads its intended uh, clientele of, of consumers... They go out of business. They, they're not meeting the needs, and someone who is competitive and sees, ah, but I can do this better, can step up and take that business. Not everybody wants to start a business. I understand that. Entrepreneurial mindsets are actually few and far between. And I say this as someone who, for most of my adult life, most of my working life, was content to, you know, I'll just find a job. Somebody will hire me, and I'll do a job for them and, you know, have that steady paycheck, and it's just going to be great. But I'm so grateful for the people who have that drive to create value, to build something. And I'm fairly new to the game, but I'm absolutely a believer. This is, this is how the world changes. And I look at the people who I have seen affecting change. By the way, most of it takes place out of the, the political realm, which is probably why you don't hear or see too much about it. But when they create value, whether it's starting a nonprofit, whether it's, you know, starting some kind of an organization that helps people in crisis or or just, you know, creating a product or, or something that, you know, helps make people's lives better. I have zero problem with them being rewarded and rewarded well, because I want that to inspire other people to likewise do things that make the world a better place. I don't think that's asking for too much. Thanks again for joining us. Check out the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.